Welcome to the Uncomfortable Truth Podcast, hosted by the rock star of consulting, Alan Weiss. Be prepared to have your beliefs challenged and your behaviors questioned. Welcome back to the Uncomfortable Truth. My guest today is my good buddy, Barry Banther. Barry Banther is an expert in family business consulting. He's been working with family-owned companies since 1992. He was born into a family sawmill business. I love that. Located in the mountains of Georgia and North Carolina. And he serves as the founder and CEO of two family advisory firms that allow him to work with his son and daughter-in-law. So he appreciates the dynamics of family business. His goal is to help his clients understand how to work in business and live together in harmony. I'll just read you a few excerpts here. Uh, He prepares families and businesses for generational transition. I'll be asking him about that. Uh, He determines exit strategies, such as acquiring financial partners, selling, or merging with another business. Uh, He talks about how to recruit CEOs, CFOs, COOs, senior business leaders uh, for these companies when necessary. He's been the COO of a nationwide broadcasting company when he was 24. He's the lead consultant in over 400 engagements and improving business performance, advisor to multiple family businesses for over 25 years and several generations. He served in the administration of three Florida governors and is the author of A Leader's Gift, How to Earn the Right to Be Followed, which reached number one in Amazon's leadership category within hours of its release. I'm out of breath. Barry, welcome. Thanks, my friend. Thank you so much. Uh, What are the key differentiators, Barry, um, of family businesses in terms of whether they succeed or don't succeed? What are the key traits? The number one thing is to recognize there is no such thing as a family business. There is, <laughs> there, there is an inner, and I take it back. If you are, if you're in, uh, if you're in in vitro fertilization business, maybe that is a family business. <laughs> uh, but in vitro fertilization, but in the first half of the last century, families naturally assumed that the next in line were going to join the company. Ford, the Ford family is an example from Ford Motor. However, since World War II. More often than not, the second or third generation have other interests. We'll get a call in our office and someone will say, we understand you do succession planning. And a member of my team, tongue in cheek, will say, well, unless you're calling from London, uh, no. And that really doesn't work very well for them right now. Uh, What we do is success planning. We'll help you and your next generation determine what are you best skilled at to succeed at. If it happens to fit something in the family business, wonderful. But if it doesn't, no, you can't do it. So the number one trait is to recognize we're a business, happens to be owned by people uh, or even people working in it who are genetically related, but the business and the business enterprise, all the things that come with that must come first. When we find a business in trouble, it's because they're taking shortcuts for family members. They're giving family members entitlement rather than them earning their place. All those things that the movies have taught us, you simply can't do in a family business. You know, I'm constantly surprised at how stupid I was two weeks ago. And until you just said it, I never realized that success and succession are really cognates and related to each other. It's very interesting. So I promised I would ask you this question in my introduction. I'm really interested in it. Are we seeing today a major uh, distinctive transgenerational shift or is this just business as usual? No, it's a major transgenerational shift. As never before, there are over $12 trillion in family business equity that over the next three to five years are going to be transferred to someone. The question is whether or not it'll be the next generation. Let me give you an example. I had a young, I had a family where the grandfather hired me along with his son to help the grandson come into the business. Grandson was 26. 
Within 24 months, the grandfather and the father both passed away suddenly from cancer. So I had to say to the 26-year-old, we don't have time to train you how to run this business, but we can train you how to own it. We established a board with outside directors. We hired a president. Today, that company has done very well, and he's an owner who sits on the board, but he never had an opportunity to learn how to run the business. So the transition we're seeing today is family business are transitioning into non-family entities that either own the business or non-family CEOs that run the business. The family may still have a financial interest, but the days of when it was dad and then it was son, then it was grandson, then it was a great grandson, with each passing week, there's less and less of that happening. It's more a generational transition to non-family leaders of the business and in many cases, non-family owners of the business. Well, this leads me to the old trope that the first generation founds a business, the second expands it, and the third ruins it. But what you're saying might break that kind of, of uh, sequence, correct? It's correct. One of the worst things, and let me give you an example. We'll get, a, we'll get a call and say, can you come help us evaluate the business? So I evaluate the next generation. I spend time with them. I listen to them. I get to know what they are thinking, what their desires are, what their skills are. And oftentimes I have to go back to the parents and say, they're not prepared to do this. They can't do this. So we can teach them how to be an owner. There are three positions a family member can hold in a business. They can be a worker. And if you're a family member, you're entitled to a job in the company at the entry most level. That's it. That's when your entitlement ends. If you do a really great job and the leaders in the company determine you can become a manager or a director in the business, or you can be an owner in the business. Some people will achieve all three. They'll be a worker, then they'll be a leader, then they'll be one of the owners. Many will just be an owner because they never had the competency to be the worker or the manager. And so the challenge is that we have to make sure the business is run by those that are competent. And you're exactly right. The third generation, if they've not been trained, if they don't have the competency, it spells doom for the business. So we strongly discourage those who don't earn their position. They can be an owner. They can be a minority owner. They can benefit financially, but they cannot be engaged in decision making for the business. Now, you work for some families uh, whose names we can't mention here, but whose names would be known by anybody if they heard them. Uh, right. And of course, it was quite public many years ago. This did not involve you that I believe it was the Hyatt family had a tremendous, tremendous problem with the ownership right. and lawsuits and everything else. Uh, is it true to say I've always said that the kind of emotional and political s situations you see at the front line on a company are also in the executive suite, but they have more money that they're playing with in family businesses? Is it the same kind of difficulties and dynamics, no matter what the size of the business? Yes, it really doesn't. There's just more zeros at the end of the check. You're exactly right. Those very same interests come to bear. And then one of the challenges is you'll have a family member who started at 16 working in the business, worked her way up, became a manager, became a director, became an officer in the company. She had a brother who was a ne'er-do-well who never really quite made it anywhere. He shows up 20 years later and he wants a C-suite position. Then the battle begins. So sibling rivalry really can play a key role unless you make it clear to the family. And with our families, we make it clear. You can start at a worker level if, you've, if you're ready for that. But anything beyond the worker level, you have to earn just like everyone else does. Now, there's another caveat, Alan. If I'm in the company as a worker and I make $15 an hour and that's what everyone else makes, dad, you can't pay him $30 an hour. If you want to come up with a way to gift him money outside of the business, but when he shows up at work, he has to recognize I am an employee like everyone else. And that carries all the way up to the C-suite. 
You can't have a C-suite where your CEO is making $300,000 a year. That's a non-family member. And your son, who's a VP of sales, is making $500,000 because he's your son. That creates all those dynamics that lead to the downfall of a family business. Uh, you often deal with um, an exit strategy that might involve a purchase by an outsider. Right. And you know, I wrote a book uh, called Your Legacy Is Now, and my intent was that you don't wait till you're on your deathbed or your doctor says, get your affairs in order to decide what your legacy is. Every day you create a legacy. And uh, my observation is that uh, every day an organization should be increasing its valuation, not wait until it decides you know, it's time to sell. Um, first, is that accurate? And secondly, do you find that um, these kinds of businesses have been somewhat remiss in uh, emphasizing building their valuation? There's no question about it. Let me show you both sides of the coin. When we get a call that says, we're thinking about selling the business, we understand you could help us prepare for that. Our first question, what's your timeline? They'll say, well, we're thinking six months. We'll say, I'm sorry, we can't help you. We have a minimum of three years. We prefer five. I have one right now today I'm working on that's very close to where you're sitting. And I'm in my 17th year. It took 17 years to get them to where we are. Really? But I, but I will tell you, it's an asking price that starts with a B. And when I started <laughs> with them, it would have barely been an M. And it takes, it takes time to do that. Now, let me look at the other side. There are several equity groups that engage me to go look at a family business they're thinking about buying. Here's what they hope I will come back to them and say. This business, they really don't know fully what they're doing. They've got a great marketing program. They've got customers. They've got inefficiencies in their IT. They're not developing their management team. If you buy this company, you're going to be able to buy it at a much lower valuation. If it might trade for 10x EBITDA on the open market, if it was really run well, you probably can get it for five. And within 12 months, we can get it to 10 with very little investment. We just got to clean it up. They like to buy companies like that where they don't know, they don't realize they've not developed a business and it won't take much to do it. Uh, when I go in to evaluate a company that's really well run and it's got great processes, and it's probably worth 10x, then the equity firm has to ask, what will we have to do to get it to 10x a double number? And sometimes they'll pass on a really good business because there's no headroom left for growth. So on one side, we, we can help a family business raise their valuation, which is going to be based on EBITDA, which is pretty simple. And you and I've had, you've taught me much about this. You lower the cost and you raise the value and the value what's in between, that's the value of the business. And so many, a question I learned from you that I will often ask a business owner, how often do your customers push back on your prices? Oh, never, never. They love us. <laughs> and I know immediately there's an opportunity for a value increase here. How much of the work you do with these groups, with these families, uh, is strictly uh, a process of improving the valuation, improving the finances, uh, looking for proper exits? And how much is sort of psychology in terms of bringing together people who might have very disparate views and emotional reactions to this? So something that uh, I don't mind sharing on this podcast, I've never shared this from the platform and wouldn't. I have I have a very good clinical psychologist I've worked with for 10 years. Uh, she does her work via Facebook and Zoom and you don't have to go to her. She's great with family businesses. Half of my clients at some point I'll be recommending some members of the family enterprise. I, I, I've taken you as far as I can on some of the interpersonal issues you're having with your family. Let's set you up with my colleague 
and she and I work together and she'll work with you to help you gain some competency in terms of how you interact, your self-perception and those things. Almost without exception. When I first suggest that, everybody says, no, 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 I don't need a counselor. And then I'll get a private phone call later in the night. You know, I really think I do. And I say to them, this is confidential. Nobody has to know you're doing it. So I would say about a third of the time we're having to deal with psychological issues. And then the rest of the time, it's the other. But there are some interesting things that happen. I have two brothers who built a very well-known family business and uh, and helped their father develop them. The father passes away. The two brothers are ready to take over the business. At the funeral, a third brother shows up. He's got a letter from the dad. He's got a birth certificate. He said, I promised I would never reveal myself till he's gone. So I had to work with him for a while. Wow. What did you want? He really just wanted a job. We got him to sign away any rights, any ownership. So that's an unusual one. Probably one that's more common than people think. It's a hidden family. It's another family that the father and sometimes even the mother will have that won't surface until after death. And so we have to work through those kind of issues. So there are always psychological issues surrounding it. I only take those so far before I bring in our clinical psychologist. But the bulk of what I'm doing is helping them determine what does it take to get from where I am to a high evaluation. Now, here's another surprise, Alan. And if you speak with any a state attorney, they will confirm this. The vast majority of my clients over all of these years with high net worth businesses, businesses that are worth 50, 100, 200, 300 million dollars, the patriarch has done very little estate planning. Give you an example. Two brothers, uh, they're in the agricultural business, and they wanted me to help them. They were a 115-year-old family business. They're ready to pass the business on to their children. Both, both of the brothers are in their late 60s. So I had my initial meeting. I said, well, I'm going to need a copy of your shareholder agreement, your wills, your estate plan, so I can put all of this on a scattergram, and I'll know kind of what I need to do to help the next generation understand their role. They're both staring at me, and I pause, and I look at them, and I said, no, no, no shareholders agreement. Nah, we never got around to it. No estate plan. Nah, not yet. No will. No. Should we do that? <laughs> so what I say to them at that point is I don't do any of those things. But if I'm going to be engaged by you, either me or a member of my team will pick you up and we will drive you to the attorney or the trust company's office. I will not work with you unless you get your affairs in order. And so frequently in the valuation process of growing the value of the business, we have to help them make some decisions about how is my estate going to be distributed now or upon my death. Uh, it's a surprise to most people that people that have been running the family business, typically, the, everything's in their cash flow, everything's in their paycheck, their bonus, their identities in the business, and they just don't think one day I won't be able to do this. Uh you know, you can make those demands and give those orders because your brand is very strong, your repute is very strong. I tell people that a brand is extraordinarily important, of course, but a brand is how people think about you when you're not around. Right. How did how do you account for the power of your brand today? How did that happen? We uh, well, first to give you how we became confirmed by it. we I had a firm do a brand study for us about seven years ago. I said, reach out to our clients. I want to know why they hire me. I was surprised, but very pleased at the answer. And here was the company came back and said, Barry, this is going to be pretty simple. Here's what your customers have told us. We know we're going to be in trouble sometime this year. We want Barry to be in trouble with us. And so, <laughs> I reckon, so, so it developed when I was growing up in that family sawmill business. My grandfather was the general superintendent of Jeanette Lumber Company in Asheville, North Carolina. He had 10 children. Every son or son-in-law ran one of his sawmills. My dad was a son-in-law. 
And he ran the sawmill in Georgia where I was born. And then he was moved to another one. And we all moved over the years, one sawmill to the next. But on Sunday afternoon, we'd gather at my grandfather's home there in Cashers, North Carolina. He had a big wraparound porch. All those son and son-in-laws would sit on the porch. My grandfather would sit there and he would hold court. I watched my dad and a brother get angry and decide they'll go do their own thing. <laughs> and so I grew up in the middle of families in trouble in business. And so when I began to work with families, oftentimes people who do what I do are either have high financial competency or they have high business management competency. I added a third one, and that was family dynamics. And I, I took a, a lot of additional graduate courses in interpersonal and family communication. Now, I don't promote that to them. I don't walk in and say, by the way, I'm going to help you grow the valuation of your business. I'm going to help you manage it. And by the way, I've got all the skills necessary to be your counselor. I never say that to them. It's just that I walk in and I can tell by looking on the face of my client, what's wrong? Well, my son came in here today and did so-and-so. Well, what, what would you like to do about that? And so I take them right into a communication dynamic with me that I help them find an answer. I'm careful not to give them the answer unless they just can't discover it. So I developed that third leg. My brand is there because I didn't shy away from the family conflict. Well, you just really alluded to values and to a large extent. Now, you and I are what's commonly called today politely men of faith yeah. and uh, proud to be uh, in that uh, position with you. Uh, do you find in these uh, family um, endeavors, uh, do they tend to be uh, religious people or not religious people or uh, it's all over the all over the map? With my clients, more often than not, they tend to be people of faith. Now, the level of that faith or the measure of that faith may vary. Uh, so they may be extremely, they may be so involved, for example, in their local church that they're not paying enough attention to the business, or they may be so uh, involved in the business that their spouse is concerned they're not involved. But I would say 60 to 70% of mine are people of faith. And that's oftentimes, there are two things that the, uh, the Family Firm Institute has done a lot of research on it. When they look at families over many generations, who are able to keep some form of family legacy or family dynamic together, two things they tend to have. One is a high degree of philanthropy. And with all of our current clients, we help them form a family foundation, get their family involved in giving. And to the person, they will tell you, it's proven much more beneficial than they thought to the dynamics of the family. So, so philanthropy is one thing they have in common. And the second thing they have in common is, is some sort of faith, some sort of belief that they're not in this alone, uh, that faith in God can give meaning and purpose to their lives. Small businesses uh, are credited with uh, being solely responsible in the United States for the increase in net new jobs. Uh, right. Large corporations replace people with technology generally, but small businesses and their expansion create new jobs. Uh, have you found that um, uh, the organization, the family businesses you've worked with uh, are actively hiring people? Uh, do they look to do they look at that as something that is important for the growth of their business, or are they trying to achieve economies through technology as well? It's a little bit of both of those, and I want to share something else I learned from you years ago that's been really a key to our firm's financial success. So uh, I'll be asked by I'll speak at a conference of family business owners. The owner will say to me, "I think you can help us." I immediately respond with, I can't with integrity tell you I'm the right person. But if we could have a few minutes to have a conversation, we'd both know. So then when I sit with that business owner, I used to start by talking about who I was, which they could care less. Nobody woke up this morning saying, I need to find a smart family business advisor. They woke up with a problem they need to solve. 
or an opportunity they want to achieve. So the first question out of my mouth is, what's your biggest challenge? And they'll say, well, my challenge is between my VP of sales and my son who's the VP of operations. And then I'll say, how do you mean that? And he'll say, well, they're not getting along about so-and-so. And I'll say, can you give me a recent example? And they'll give me a recent example. And then I'll always stop and say, but is that really a significant problem? Is that really going to make a difference to your bottom line? And they'll usually say, yes, we lost a quarter of a million dollar deal over it. And then I'll say, so right now your challenge is your son and the VP aren't working together. As a result, they're missing opportunities and you just lost a quarter of a million dollar deal that you'd like me to help you find a way to solve that. Inevitably, they look at me and say, well, how much is this going to cost? And I look right at them and respond, you mean if your VP and your son don't communicate and they don't learn to get on these things earlier and you keep losing a quarter of a million dollars every month, they'll, they'll smile and they'll say, that's cute. And then here's my phrase that pays, Alan. But isn't that the only cost that matters? If I can't help you solve that, where they communicate, work together, and you you achieve those quarter of a million dollar deals, I can't be cheap enough to be worth your money or my time. However, if I can help you get them to work together, solve the problem, get the opportunity and gain the quarter of a million, my fee is irrelevant, isn't it? And the ones who say, you're right, that's the one I work with. And here's what I found about family businesses. When I was working with Boeing and Rockwell and Eli Lilly and Pfizer, I'm working with, at best, a high-level VP. I found that family business owners have a much greater value in what employees mean in hiring good people. They have a whole lot more discretionary money to spend, and they know how to value a solved problem. That Fortune 50 VP is just trying to fill in blank. So that's why I chose to only work with family-owned businesses, preferably between about 50 million and 500 million, because they clearly know what the value is for hiring the right people, having the right advisors to help you solve problems. And so that's the path I chose. And, and as you know, I do that with uh, one annual fee. When we come to an agreement of what we're going to be doing this year, there's one fee. And uh, we, I use uh, a proposal you're familiar with and we go to work. Well, the, you know, the emotionalism is much higher in the family business because that corporate officer uh, isn't worried about whether to spend money with you or his kid's education. I mean, that's not how that works. Right. Do you find that uh, these family businesses tend to be liberal or conservative or all over the lot? No, they're almost without exception conservative uh, in terms of their politics, in terms of their economic outlook. And Almost of that exception, 60% of the time, they've got a very, what we would describe as liberal son or daughter. Yeah. And so I'm doing, I'm working with one of those right now, a family business that started in 1805. Can you believe that? And I'm dealing with a great, great grandson who's 84, who's ready to, ready to transition to his three children. One of those children is very liberal and it concerns him with her having any access to the family business. So Here's a problem. We talk about being in trouble. So I sat with that child and we went. I, I let them tell me the whole family history. And, and, and this person has a real heart for something that I think is very important, whether you're liberal or conservative, but her father views it as liberal. So I asked her, I said, if you could, if you could wave the magic wand, what would happen here? She said, I'm not interested in the family business, but I would love to have my ownership somehow allow me to help this entity I want to help. So now I go back to the dad and I say to the dad, Look, she's she's not interested in upsetting the business. She'd really rather not be involved in running the business. But if there's a fair equity for her ownership, that we can find a way that she could have access to that on an annual basis to pursue these things that are important to her, then she will sit on the family board, but as a non-voting member, she'll turn her shares over so she can do this. 
And that's a typical way we solve that problem. I tell the father, here's our goal or the mother. We want to solve the problem and save the child. That's what we're trying to do. Solve the problem and save the child. What's the percentage of organizations that you meet with that you would be willing to work with? Not that you reject. You'd be willing to work with. What's the percentage? What's your hit rate? How many go along with you? Uh, well, we do such a good job of vetting them mm-hmm. that it, it's all. When I send out the proposal, it's about a ninety-eight percent hit rate. And if huh. it's not, it's only because of some challenge. Now, I would say of out of ten requests we get, we only do a proposal to to six because I will have determined that the other four are going to be time vampires. They don't know how to measure value, so there's no need in going there. But our hit rate, once the, what I say to them is it's going to take us about 60 days for me to meet with you, meet with your team, before I can even put together a proposal. Now, the truth is, I can write that proposal tonight. Yeah, I know. They, they, need, they need the experience of walking through this. Yeah. And what they'll get during that period is how I work with them. My goal is by the time I get through that 30 to 60 days and I've decided I want this client, I've helped them solve a problem. They've seen how quickly I'll respond to them. Then I put the proposal together and that's about a 98% hit rate. So it really starts 30 to 60 days earlier, but the proposal seals it. Your son and your daughter-in-law you brought into the business. So my son grew up in the business and my daughter-in-law, they met at Hillsdale where they were both students. My son came back and I said, I'm not going to prepare you to run this business because when I finish doing what I'm doing, it's over. I'm not interested in managing people. I want to be out there with the families, but I want you to come in and be my managing partner. You'll take over all of our finances. You'll take all over all of our administrative work. I've typically had a staff of about five people who are doing research, answering questions for me. I'm doing the client facing. And I said, in the meantime, I want you to decide what business do you want to be in? What kind of advice or consulting business? He decided he wanted to be in the real estate business. So I helped him start his firm, helped him bring in a partner. He's now got a very thriving uh, commercial and residential real estate business, property management business, uh, commercial building investment business. And really, it's one of his team members now who's his CFO, who really does all our financial management. So he's got his own practice. Then my daughter-in-law came in, and a member I mentioned philanthropy, but we have seven families who've established family foundations as a result of our work. We manage those foundations. We don't manage the money. We oversee the people that do, but we manage the grant request, the verification, training the trustees, getting the children involved. It's important in a family foundation, the kids don't come together and write checks. They've got to go out and visit the nonprofit, maybe work in the nonprofit, then bring them the check. So my daughter-in-law is now the managing partner of that. So if I left today, her business continues. There's no need for me to be there. And his business continues. So I've helped both of them develop their business. So when it's time for me to stop or nobody calls on the phone, we'll be finished. <laughs> uh, Barry, I have two more questions. The first is this. A lot of people who own businesses are listening to this podcast. If you had to give them just one piece of advice, what would that advice be? If they're a family owned business, they need to think about three things. First of all, They need to be thinking now about what is my exit strategy and be willing to look at all the possibilities. Possibility number one, there could be a family member who could be developed to do it. That takes about 10 years. If you don't have 10 years, don't even consider that. It takes about a decade to prepare a family member to step into your shoes. The second way you can exit is you can sell to the employees. There can be people within your company, been with you a long time, very capable, you can sell it to them. Or thirdly, and the quickest and most financially lucrative exit is to sell it on the market 
to either a competitor or an equity group. So first thing is, what's my exit strategy? Second thing is, what do I want in my family relationships post this business? Mm. What kind of relationship do I want to have with my children, with my grandchildren, with my spouse? And think through that. There's a great book uh, called Halftime uh, that was uh, written around that very question. When I get to that point in my life where I'm going to have leisure now and not work, what do I want to do with my life? That That's important. And then the third thing you need to do is really work on your estate plan. Make sure you've got a firm plan for what happens to all of your assets. I would recommend you work not only with an estate attorney, but with a trust company. And something that my friends might find controversial, never, ever, ever make a family member a trustee to anything in your business. You want to use a professional trustee at a well-recognized trust company who do this every day because your family member, if you have any size of state at all, they're not equipped to be a trustee over an estate. You want that to be done by a corporate trustee. Those are the three things I would suggest, Alan. Barry, uh, if people wanted to reach you, find out more about what you do, what's the best way for them to do that? Barry at BarryBanther.com. Spell it B-A-R-R-Y. B-A-R-R-Y at B-A-R-R-Y, B-A-N-T-H-E-R.com. They can go to Banther.com, see the website, but really just send me an email and we'll be happy to respond to you. I want to thank you so much for sharing all this. It's a wealth of information. It's going to do a lot of people a lot of good. And I appreciate you being here, Barry, and continued success. Alan, thank you. Thank you very much for so much. You've been listening to The Uncomfortable Truth with Alan Weiss. For free access to Alan's newsletters, audio and video resources, and for information about his global events and coaching communities, please visit alanweiss.com. Thanks for listening. Keep the faith.